if I'm being totally transparent, um, I also, in a significant way, can battle with this idea that um, I just want to feel like God would say, attaboy, good job. of the Lord. Thank you for being gracious with me. I was at a conference, and so I had some of my amazing staff members teaching the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and I will say, AJ, man, he is doing great. I love him. I'm so proud of our younger pastors. That's right. And, uh, and I'm also uh, love Kathy. Of course, Kathy, she'll be up again here in a few weeks. She is, I, I really mean this, um, I, I mean, I've worked at a number of churches over the years, and I've been in the academy for a long time. Kathy really is a brilliant Bible teacher. Um, if you want to know the word in deeper ways, she is a good person to take out for lunch. That woman knows the word. I have set, this is true, if I have some professors that watch, so I, I, with all love and grace, I have set in doctoral level classes with Kathy and had her get up to like teach something. And I think, man, you are even clearer and more insightful than my professors. I love you. I love you. Kathy's amazing. And so it's always good that she's able to teach. Yeah, you can clap for her too. It's good to have her. I don't even know if she's, I thought I saw her somewhere around here. Wherever, oh, she's in the back, Kathy. I didn't even know you were in the room. So that was genuine. <laughs> that was genuine. It was, it was real. It was genuine. Uh, but I'm so grateful for my staff. I was at a conference this last week, but it is very good to be back. Uh, one quick announcement, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, we are in a transition time in our church. Trinity is continuing to move forward. For those of you in our congregation, you know this. We just planted a church here recently, and we've got some big plans for the future. And so we're needing to do some restructuring on the staff as the team is continuing to grow. And so Matthew Hines, uh, our, he is the director of 18 and Under Ministries for our organization. We're actually moving him into the XP role, executive pastor role. So Don Katie is retiring or has retired. Is Don in here this morning? I don't know. He, might, he goes to the other campus a lot. I don't know if he's here. Don has retired and Matthew Hines is moving into that role, which means we have been on the hunt for a new children's pastor. And uh, we are whittling it down. It's getting tighter and tighter, but we don't quite have a final one yet that I'm aware of. We don't. There we go. So, uh, but it's getting closer and closer. So here soon we'll be announcing a, a new children's pastor to fill that slot. So Matthew's staying with us. We're not losing anybody, but we're moving him into more of a, an overseer role, um, especially taking on a lot of stuff that Don Katie used to do in the business administration side. He's going to do an excellent job there. So when you see Matt, give him a big hug or I don't know, is that okay to do in COVID? Whatever. Yeah, you can. He's fine. He, he's totally fine. Um, so love that. He's moving into that role. It'll be really good. Uh, I am in this series, Romans uh, 8, 28, our verse today, this series of memorizing scripture, this has been a really powerful one for me. Uh, this time of year, I did not intend to plan it this way, but it worked out this way. Um, this time of year is usually when we celebrate where the church has been, the big things that it's done over the past year, and, uh, and we kind of cast a little vision for the future. And so I want to cast vision for the future, but in a way that I have never done it before. Usually when I cast vision for the future, I do so uh, 
in a way in which I am celebrating and bringing attention to and focusing on like structures and KPI and projects, remodeling, a new expansion, church plants we want to do, whatever it might be, right? All of this strategy and structure. That is good. God uses strategy and structure. But I want to set vision today for the heart of our church. For the heart of our church. I want to open with just a simple question. And it ties into the verse that we're memorizing for this week, but it's this question What is a good life? I mean, like, really, in all honesty for you, what would a good life be? And, and I, I do want you to think about this for just a moment. Like, personally to you, would a good life be God giving you a new job? Like, when you're praying for God to improve your life, are you praying for a spouse if you're single? If you are married, are you praying out of it? I don't know, right? Like, how does that work? I'm not sure, right? If you don't have kids, are you praying for a family? Are you praying that God would provide more financially for you? Are you praying that God would increase your influence? I mean, like, in our hearts and minds... What is it that you're honestly praying for, asking for, when you're asking God for a good life? What is a good life? And I think the vast majority of us, in fact, I think the good life is becoming even harder to achieve in the sense that it is a moving target ever made unreal by social media. So you get on social media and you see people post the exaggerated, rare moments of good in their life and you compare your regular Tuesday to it and you think, why can't I have that good life? You don't love me, God. Why don't you bless me like that? It's not fair. What is a good life? And I honestly think that, um, in fact, to be honest, I think many Christians don't feel like they are living the good life. I mean, I I don't want you to raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't respond. Don't raise your hand. Don't respond. But if I was like to like just ask, don't raise your hand. Don't respond. You know, who here really thinks they're living the good life? I bet very few hands would go up. And if any hand did go up, we'd all be like, you're a liar. And I think this comes with like two false assumptions, this idea that I want the good life, but I'm not living it. And the way I would say this is this is the from and for tension. So whenever we feel like God is not being faithful to us, there's a from and for side to this coin. Let me see if I can explain this to you. The the from would be this. You think God is displeased with you in some way. So I'm talking to Christians right now. You think God is displeased and therefore keeping some good things from you. So what happens is those of us that have grown up in like the whole 
holiness Methodist movement. It's like, if I could just get my life a little bit better, this one little struggle that I have, this one little battle that I have, my tendency to be jealous or my tendency to lust or my tendency, if I could just get all of these little pieces of my life hammered out, God would finally pour out his blessing on me. I'm not doing something right. I got to make an adjustment. I really want the good life. I got to figure this out. The other side of the coin is this. Some of you feel like you aren't doing good or big things for God. And therefore, you're not making him very proud. I mean, like you sit and you look at your life. I remember this a few years ago, seven, eight years ago now. I was lifting weights uh, at a gym here locally. And one of the guys that I would meet um, and work out with at the gym he was a, a lawyer, a really, really cool guy. I've stayed in touch with him a little bit on and off over the years. And uh, I remember one time we were, we were doing bench press. And so, you know, I, I pick it up and I put it down and he's working out. And he gets done. Then I lay down. Right before I go, uh, he would always ask me spiritual questions. He, you know, of course, found out I was a pastor. So he'd always ask me spiritual questions. And he'd be, he, he picks it up, puts the bar in my hand. And then he's like, where in the world in heaven, is there a place for a lawyer? <laughs> and I was like, there isn't one. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say, I didn't say that. I, did, I, did, I, did, I promise I didn't say it. Um, no, but like I, I did. I mean, he was like, where in the world is there a place in heaven for a lawyer? And, uh, you know, and, and I, finished, I finished my set and I, I rack it. And, and I, we had this really great conversation. And this whole idea, this guy had spent so much time in education. He's actually very successful. And, um, and, and the fear is, you know, as he's trying to follow God, he can't do his life, how it all played out, the job that he has. He feels so insignificant before God. It's like, I'm not doing anything big or anything special. In fact, if anything, I feel like maybe what I'm doing isn't even all that good at a higher level. I don't know, am I just wasting my days? In my uh, last class, um, we were actually studying monastic authors and writers, so like the era of high monastery, those come in, it's like Evagrius, Ponticus, some of these early monastic leaders and we were studying them, and then we were going to practice some of the spiritual practices that they did. Um, and I ended up going on a retreat where I was in solitude and silence. And so I was getting ready to go on this retreat, solitude and silence, and preparing for it. So I went to like confession with a pastor friend of mine. I'm pouring my heart out and preparing my heart to go on this solitude and silence trip. And, and then I show up at the place that we're going to. And, and I remember praying. I'm like, Lord, I ask that you would reveal to me what it is that you want me to do next. That was my prayer. So like, I don't know if you've ever prayed that. It's like, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What job do you want me to take? Should I move? Should I go to this place? Should I make this investment? Should I, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And so I was doing the same thing. I'm like, God, what do you want me to do? I just pray that while I'm in this time of solitude and silence, that you would meet with me in a dynamic way and reveal to me powerfully what it is that you want me to do next. And in my mind, I'm thinking of all the things that we have done, like over the last 10 years of being here in Indianapolis, right? 
I mean, the, the ministries that we've launched, the, the feeding programs that we've done, the campuses that we've kicked out, the new, I mean, my goodness, church plant, you name it, all the way down the line. So many amazing things with the last, the lost, the least. I mean, missionaries that have been sent, young pastors that have been raised up and sent out. I mean, it's been so cool the last 10 years to watch God move in such powerful ways across the greater India and beyond. And so I'm like, God, what do you want me to do next? But, but here's the thing, if I'm being really transparent, here's the thing that I struggle with in my own heart, and it's this. The lie I often struggle with is that I'm not doing big enough or good enough things for him to be proud of me. Right? Like, I mean, if I'm being totally transparent, um, I also, in a significant way, can battle with this idea that um, I just want to feel like God would say, boy, good job. And somehow in all the complexity of doing ministry and building things and education and the whole works, there's a lot of good. See, the reality is so much of what we do, we want to make it binary, all bad or all good. But so much of what we do can be a lot of good, but with some mixed motives in there and some bad things, but like mixed motives that might be good or misunderstood. Like we are complex. And the truth is, even from me to you, so many of the things that I've launched and started and built and worked on and or degrees that I've pursued, so much of it, as good as it has been, there's this like weaving of a thread in there of this false idea that I am constantly trying to earn the favor of God and I want him so bad. I want him to look at me and go, that's a good job. So I'm always hungry and searching for the next big thing. What's the next big thing you want me to do? What's the next big thing that we're supposed to make? What's the next big thing we're supposed to work on? So we land at the retreat, I'm sitting down, I'm thinking this through a little bit, I've got prayer prompts in front of me, I've got my journal, and we go into solitude and silence. I end up making my way down to this little lake where we were at, I'm sitting there, and I'm just, well, there's nothing. Except for some geese fighting out on the water. And I sat there and I sat there and then I finally felt like the Lord whispered in my ear, write love letters to your kids. And I thought, all right. So I pulled open my journal, all five of my children, and I just started writing love letters to each of my children individually. I'm going to come back to that here in a few minutes. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That is the $10 million question. What is the good that all things are working towards? Is it you being rich? Is it you being healthy and wealthy and prosperous? Is it you getting the job that satisfies you? Is it, I mean, what is the good that all things are working towards? I mean, we often read this text, but we forget it in context, and so we read it and we're like, oh yeah, that's right. But we impose our version, which might actually be unhealthy for us long-term. We impose our version of good that we believe God is working towards. And then we're mad at him when he doesn't give us the our version of good that actually isn't objectively good for us. Did you follow that? 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, his purpose, his purpose. When reading the Bible, specifically, there are statements and storylines. You cannot forget this. As a good biblical scholar, you cannot forget this. When reading, there are statements and storylines. A statement outside of a storyline can lead to wrong conclusions. A statement in the Bible outside of its storyline can lead to very wrong conclusions about the Bible, wrong conclusions about God. And in the book of Romans, the whole first part of Romans is really interesting, especially chapters one through four, because you basically have a lot of Jewish religious leaders, and these Jewish people were really good at all the laws of God. And then Paul makes this strong case in the first four chapters that you can be pursuing the laws of God and not at all have a heart for God. So you can literally be doing all the right good things and have a heart that's still really wrong. I know for me, one example of this would be speed limits. (laughs) I could drive down the road and I see the speed limit on the side of the road and I obey it. But I do not love it. And when other people speed past me, I want them to be punished (laughs) for not adhering to the law that I hate. We do this spiritually too, right? Like even in the church. We have extra biblical rules that we feel like we need to follow and when others don't follow them, we want them punished. And maybe even in my own home when I think this through a little bit, like loving it when my wife cooks a good meal for me is not the same as loving her because she cooks a good meal for me, right? Like my love, if you look at the grand story of our marriage, she cooks good meals for me. You do cook, she's in this service, so you do cook really good meals. I love you. When my wife does cook a good meal for me, she does it because she loves me. She doesn't do it to try to earn my love, right? That's the grand story of our marriage. And somehow in this man, we have a misconstrued view of God. And I get it. In our Western world of KPIs and our Western key performance indicators in the business world, in our Western world of job descriptions, of of feeling like you're going to get fired constantly, of trying to earn your place on the football team, on the soccer team, on the whatever team you play on. I mean, in this highly competitive Western free market, it's really easy for us to think that all of our value is in how good or effective or what we can produce. And think about what that does to your view of God or your view of how God views you. Like God's up there with a key performance indicator checklist and he's like, oh, you overslept, demerit. Oh, you didn't. God loving it when we do good works God loving it when we do good works is not the same as God loving us because we do good works. The grand story of Scripture makes it clear. God wants us to do good works from his love, not for his love. And that from and for difference will save your soul. 
Let's take a journey through history to understand this Romans text. I'm going to invite Josh up, and I'm going to pull some of this to a conclusion here in a few minutes, a few mic minutes. Count real slow. Real, real slow. I want to take a journey through history. We're going to go for a few, a few thousand years, all right? So we're going to cover a few thousand years with some primary thinkers. The first two quotes that I give you are translated, so bear with me. They're, they're, they're a more accurate translation, meaning they don't sound all that, you know, colloquial in English, right? They're just, they're, it's, they're hard to understand, but listen close to the heart of this, the first couple of them. But we're going to follow a few thousand years of teachers, core biblical leaders through history, right? Starting with Paul, what we read in Romans, the good. Now we're going to get past biblical narrative to Evagrius Ponticus. How many people here have read him? I have. Anybody? Josh, have you read him? Man, okay, I really am the only one here. Okay. One of the first monastic leaders. In his pursuit of trying to understand what it means to follow God in a collapsing Roman Empire, he says this, There can be no knowledge in the higher part of the soul without virtue first being established in the passionate part of the soul. A loving relationship with God is the prime good. Listen to Teresa of Avalia. Now, she's more common. Some of you probably read her. Teresa of Avalia, one of the most famous of nuns in history, says this. Now, again, this is translated, so bear with me, but hear the heart in this. We're jumping a few hundred years at a time, right? He produces this delight. He produces this delight with the greatest peace and quiet and sweetness in the very interior part of ourselves. I don't know from where or how, nor is that happiness and delight experienced as our earthly consolations in the heart. I mean, there is no similarity at the beginning, for afterward, the delight fills everything. This water overflows through all the dwelling places and faculties until it reaches the body. A loving relationship with God is the prime good. Let's jump forward a big chunk of time and look at John Wesley. In the year 1750 or 1764, upon a review of the whole subject, he's talking about Christian perfection, this whole doctrine of Christian perfection. This is actually a great sermon. Um, if you like to go back and read sermons from a long time ago, I do. Upon a review of the whole subject, Christian perfection, it is perfect. 1 John 4, 18. This is the essence of it. Its properties, inseparable fruits, are rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks. A loving relationship with God is the prime good. The Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Luther says this, I got my times a little mixed up there, but Luther says this, Jesus is the only king when you actually get him will satisfy you, and the only king when you miss him will forgive you. A loving relationship with God is the prime good. Now we'll land on a living scholar, probably one of the most prolific Christian writers alive today, Dr. John Piper. He says this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Satisfied. 
so there I am sitting by the edge of the lake. And I'm praying, man. I mean, just like, I'm a passionate man. I'm a very passionate man. A very driven, passionate man. Annoyingly driven, passionate man. I am sorry, dear. And I am sitting by the side of the lake and I am praying, God, show me what is the next thing that we're supposed to work on, that we're supposed to do, where are we supposed to go with the church in my own life? What thing do you want me to take on? Like the, the David soldier in me rises up. It's like, to hell and back, I will march for your glory, God. Like that kind of passion is in me. So it's like, I'm wanting to go, you name it. What do you want me to make to plant another church right away? Do you want me to another campus, another lead? What do you want? me to do, God. I will do it. I will do whatever it is you want me to do. And he whispers in my soul, write love letters to your kids. So I do. One, two, three, four, five. I pour my heart out to my children. Before you ever got an A, I was proud of you. Before you ever scored a goal, I was grateful that you were my child. Before you ever did a chore around the house, I was glad you were in my home. Before you learned to walk, I mean, literally, you did nothing. Mom did all the work. I watched it. You got into my hands from her work, not yours. And I held you in my hand as that little baby, and my heart was so for you. And you have done nothing, accomplished nothing, gone nowhere. I loved you just because you were my kid. One, two, three, four, five times I wrote that out in long letters. I finish it, and I feel God whisper in my heart, read him again. So I read through it again and 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 again, pouring my heart out for my children before they ever accomplish anything. Then I finish it and I'm emotional because I love my kids and I feel in my heart, I hear in my mind, the Spirit whispered to me, son, this is how I love you. But even better and pure, your productivity does not define your worth. You are my son, and that's why you're worthy. You guys, listen to me. You are loved. And that little, but, but you don't know. I, I haven't accomplished. I don't know. I've not done much. I don't have a job that. All those little buts that are in there, they're lies of the enemy. They don't define your worth. While you were still yet a sinner, God died for you. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, he knows your name. Your worth is not in your work. Your worth is in your relationship to him. 
And you need to know this, man, in the text, when you look at this, it's so good. The ultimate good that God is working us towards is simply being in his loving family. That is the good. There isn't a better the good. There is no amount of money, no amount of influence, no amount of power. There is nothing in this temporary falling, breaking apart world that can satisfy what the human heart needs to run on. And the only thing that the human heart can run on for forever is the love of God. That's it. That's it. Your soul was made to run on the love of God. And the enemy wants you to shove anything else into that engine possible. But your soul was made to run on the love of God alone. A way that I might say it would be this. Blessed are those that understand the prime, the prime good in life is found in a right presence with God not a good purpose for him. The prime good is presence. So what do I want for the church for this next season? Well, after I got up from the side of that lake, My devotional times, not always, but they have been so sweet. I feel more like a, like my one-year-old when I get home from work. Dad, 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 you pick him up and... She just, my, my one-year-old, she, she tucks her arms in like this and just leans in close when you hug her. Tucks her arms all in, right? So you hug her and I just hold her, I hold her. And I tell her, sometimes I hold you for you, sometimes I hold you for me. Sometimes I hold you for both of us, right? And church family, the future that I envision for us is an intimacy with Jesus at a whole new level. That's what I want for you. Intimacy with Jesus at a whole new level. I want you to taste and see how good it is to just rest in the love of God. I want that for you. Blessed are those that understand the prime good in life is not found in, or is found in right presence with God, not a good purpose for him. Good purpose is good, but what is best is presence. If you would grab the Next Steps card, they're in the back of the chair in front of you, pull it out, pull the Next Steps cards out, at least pretend like you're doing it, get it out, make me feel like I'm doing something up here. Get the Next Steps cards out, pull it out. And here's what I want you to do. I I want you to spend a moment in prayer, right? And rather than asking God, God, what do you want me to do? Don't ask that today. Don't ask God, what do you want me to do? That's a good question. It's not a bad question. It's a good question. It's a good question. It's a good question. But that's not the question I want you to ask today. Here's what I want you to ask today. 
God, how, how do you want me to be? How do you want me to be before you? Be still. Be at peace. Be loved. Your Father, who died on the cross to rescue you while you were still in sin, wants to whisper truth into your heart today. Listen to it and write it down. And in a moment when Josh closes out, if you would just bring those forward and in, a, in a, just a, a wonderful symbolism, maybe spend time at the altar, lay it at the altar, put your hand on it. Maybe this is a truth you need to embrace. I am loved and you need to really pray, God, you've spoken this truth today. Sear it in my soul so I don't forget it tomorrow. But here in a moment, come and spend time in prayer over it. Go ahead and write. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps. Thank you.